I want to share with you um, this little story. On July 31st, 1981, a person writes, I woke up in a jail cell in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, under arrest as a result of my last alcoholic blackout. I am alive and sober today only because the access I had to treatment, as well as to the grace of God, and the support of recovering people these last 25 years. I'm living proof that treatment, God's grace, and recovery is possible. Jim Ramstead shared that testimony before an Education Labor Subcommittee on Health, July 10, 2007. Ramstead continued to share with them, it's a national tragedy that last year alone, which would have been 2006, 150,000 of our fellow Americans died from chemical addiction and 34,000 of those Americans committed suicide from depression. And it's a national crisis costing the country $550 billion a year. And we're trying to bail out the economy with how much? And he goes on and says, and to think of the cost that can't be measured in dollars and cents, human suffering, broken families, shattered dreams, ruined careers, and destroyed lives. It didn't surprise me then last February when I met him really for the first time, Representative Ramstead, as we were shaking hands and I was introduced by the person, in fact, who was going to be sharing his story in a moment. He introduced me to Jim. And Jim, as he heard that I was the pastor of Wise at a Free, said, wow, what a great church. And we talked a little bit about that. And then as he was leaving, he put his hand on my shoulder, and I thought it was kind of, um, I was kind of touched by it, I guess. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, you know, Kevin, any time there is a person in your congregation who is struggling with some kind of chemical dependency issue, is seeking, you know, to get well, give me a call. I thought, yeah, right. And he said, kind of as my thoughts were thinking that, he must have seen it in my eyes. He goes, I mean it. <laughs> really. And what was kind of cool about the whole thing is he didn't say it in a self-righteous way, but with really humility and concern. Because Jim had known the difficulty of honestly dealing with this. It was a blackout that forced him to become visible. An alcoholic blackout. He didn't have a choice. Kind of hit bottom as he sat in a jail cell. And imagine that a public figure, this is all public. Which was really God's grace, as he says, to him. Well, I was just came back. This, uh, I spent three days with six guys in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. You can all feel sorry for me. Um, we were fly fishing. We actually did some um, horse trail riding. Hiking. I know you're feeling more and more sorry for me, but I knew three of these six guys. Um, There's three of them that I didn't know very well. And one of our first conversations, as we were just talking about God and how he relates to us, we got talking about just becoming vulnerable and opening up our life, taking those things which people don't know that may cause us shame and getting it into the light and what was that like. And, And these guys were all on different you know, just like all of us on different uh, parts of their journey in faith. And one of the, the individuals who's really just in this process right now of coming to uh, understanding the, the, the love and, and relationship that his father through Jesus wants to have with him said this. 
I'll take um, that step of becoming authentic and getting real. When I hear someone begin asking questions about my life and doing so in a very authentic way. And I thought, wow, where have I read that before? Luke chapter 15 says in verses 1 through verse 7, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear them. They were all kind of standing, here I am, Jesus. Because... As you read on, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, these who were the religious, self-righteous, those who were seeking so hard to prove that they were walking in good standing before God, are standing around muttering towards one another. This little muttering as Jesus is over here with those who are beginning to step into the light. They muttered, this man welcomes sinners. And beyond that, he eats with them. Imagine that. How many share meals with people you can't stand? You see, in that culture, in that day, you would actually share a meal with someone that you enjoyed and wanted to be engaged with and wanted to open your heart to. And Jesus must have, in some incredible way, have developed a reputation among those who were stepping into the light that this guy asks questions and is authentically caring about me. While the Pharisees gave him the reputation that said, this guy associates with people you shouldn't associate with. And my prayer has been as a church, we'll be the kind of church that, like Jesus, begins to learn how to make it safe for people to open up and begin to share their hearts so that God, through us, has the ability to touch that life. Well, I want to share with you, because um, I wanted to talk about addictions. And we can talk about chemical addictions, we can talk about all kinds of, of addictions. But let me give you some facts on chemical dependency um, because you yourself may have within your family this issue. You yourself may have this issue. You may work with someone who has this issue. Alcohol abuse and alcoholism cuts across gender, race, and nationality. In fact, in the United States, 17.6 million people, about one in every 12 adults, abuse alcohol or, or are in some degree alcohol dependent. One in every 12. These are federal statistics, folks. In general, more than, it, it appears that more men than women are alcohol dependent or have alcohol problems. We also know this. This is something that has been recently, um, they're discovering through research. We know that people who start drinking at an early age, for example, at age 14 or younger, are at a much higher risk of developing alcohol problems at some point in their lives compared to someone who starts drinking after age 21. Well, one of the reasons that's the case is chemical dependency, alcohol addiction, whatever the addiction may be, part of what you're doing is medicating pain. So at 14, a person who may experience a lot of pain takes a medication through that, and that medication soothes something until finally it becomes their prison. And that which they most long for is outside the walls of what this medication at one point brings. Although alcohol problems are the highest among young adults ages 18 to 29 and lowest among adults 65 or older, there has been, in the last number of years, a marked increase in alcohol difficulties of those who are age 65 and above. 
and often in men who get done with the career and they're struggling to find something, it's, it's, they find a marked increase. Well, I could go on, and I just wanted to set that up because I wanted to ask Mike Syme to come and share with us. Mike is a personal friend of mine, and um, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He's married to uh, his wife, Pam. He has a father of three. Um, on a personal note, one of the great things I love about Mike, we've done some things together, um, is how much he desires to live in the light with his life. And when I was thinking of the series of Living the Light and looking at all the different weeks coming up where we're going to have certain stories along the way, I, didn't, I couldn't think of a better way to kind of help us deal with this and talk about this than to have someone come up and just share their story. Mike um, is owner of two businesses, one which you recently sold, um, chairman of Johnson Institute and chairman of George Washington University. Is a long name. Center for Integrated Behavioral Health Policy. What's that about? <laughs> it's a long title. Yeah. Well, academic, academia. Also on the, the board of Treehouse here and locally. And um, you were also a YPO, Young Presidents thing. Mm-hmm. What are you now, an OPO? I'm an old president. Yeah. <laughs> old president? Yeah. No. <laughs> Mike, I'm really excited for you to share how God helped you get kind of in the light about this stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin. My name is Mike, and I'm an alcoholic. And I don't talk in front of large groups that often, but whenever I do, I always start off that way. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you not laughing at me when I said that, because a lot of times that's the reaction you get, especially if they're coming up and you're talking about your business or your company or your industry or some totally unrelated. I, I usually don't get a setup quite like that. Um, and I'm glad I noticed he didn't out me in the program before I got up here. But, um, I mean, people are just kind of shocked. They kind of wonder. In fact, I had one young man come up to me after I gave the talk. And he said, so, he says, how long you been an alcoholic? I said, well, all my life, but I've been sober since 81. He goes, you really are an alcoholic? And I do it, and I try to get out there so that people understand that I know a little bit about it. I've had sobriety. You're in my part of the sandbox. And if I can be a resource, kind of like Congressman Ramstead said, I'd, I'd like to do that. Whenever I do get in front of an audience, I don't know why I get nervous. Because I had a friend of mine who once told me, you know, when you're speaking, you just let God flow through you. That's all it is. There's nothing to be nervous about. And every time I sit and I get nervous and I think, now, why am I getting nervous? One time I was doing that, and I started to laugh, and I said, yeah. Why should I be nervous? Like, God's not going to show up? If anybody should be nervous, it's God. He's got to try and get his message through me. <laughs> and that's made it a lot easier for me when I do this. But, you know, my story's pretty normal. I, I was a normal kid growing up. I think I wanted to be a fireman or a cowboy or I don't know what I wanted to be. I am really sure I did not want to be an alcoholic that I really wanted just a normal life. And really, I, I found out early on in my drinking, you know, it was that, that, that I was allergic to alcohol, that actually when I drank, I broke out in bad behavior. And so once I found that out, it only took me about uh, 10 years to get sober from there. I kept trying to go out there and field test and figure out, how could I just be a social drinker? Because that's really what I'm... 
I really had no desire to quit drinking. I just wanted it to, I wanted to control it and not have it control me. And I tried a lot of things to do that. Oh, I mean, I'm, and I thought I was the only guy actually until I got into treatment, but I would try to like start later in the evening. And all I did was just drink faster. You know, I tried to like space it out. So I'd have a beer and then I'd have a pop or a water and a beer. Because I realized that delaying it wasn't working and, and that didn't work. And then I started drinking things that I really didn't like to taste. I thought, you know, I could get drunk on that. I finally got to the point I said, why don't I drink something that it would be impossible to get drunk on? I'm here to tell you that one time I got drunk on ice cream grasshoppers. I was cold, I was green, and I was intoxicated. And one day I found myself in an intervention instead of going to lunch. I got invited, I'm driving down, we're passing all the restaurants with my dad. We finally end up at this building out in Golden Valley. And we get up into this Johnson Institute, and it was, uh, it was a place that actually Wheelock Whitney and Vern Johnson started back in the 60s. And it came as a result of Wheelock's wife and Vern's work kind of colliding. And they started the Johnson Institute, which really changed the whole field of addiction. Um, today they call it, and they have always called it, the Minnesota model. And it really is the basis for intervention that goes on around the world. I'll give you the background on just AA, and I was, I was liking Kevin's. I told him before, you know, all the statistics you throw up there, the reality is that 83.2% of all statistics are made up on the spot. But to give you the background of what's going on, um, AA started in the 30s. It was right after the Oxford movement was kind of falling apart. And this one guy, Bill Wilson, got sober in New York. And it was with a lot of help from actually Dr. Young across the ocean. Finally got him to the point that he got some sobriety, being sober about three months. Goes over to Akron on a business trip and he is he's looking and the bar sign is flashing and he's... Not sure what to do, but he knows that's not going to help him. And so he realized that what's really helped him is helping other drunks and talking to them. So he asked, is there anybody around that would fit that bill? And Dr. Bob was actually in a hospital trying to dry out and really just trying to save his life. And so he sat down. He says, I'll give him like 10 minutes. And he gave him a few hours. And they came out, and Dr. Bob said, you know, it's the first time anybody ever talked and didn't talk about my drinking. He was talking about his drinking. And that's really the foundations of AA. The whole concept that it was one drunk helping another and not pointing it out. But one of the problems that happened was until the mid-60s, it was really believed that until you hit rock bottom, until you had really lost everything or... And yeah, that you couldn't get sober and have quality sobriety. The other thing was that the only way you could go to treatment is if we went willingly. That somehow you had to just embrace the idea, I want to be, an, I'm ready to go. And Vern said, that's just nuts. He said, that's not going to happen. He says, because nobody really went willingly. Everybody wants to figure out how to do it on their own. And if we keep following that, we're going to be going to a lot more funerals than we are having families visit their loved ones in treatment. 
And so once you figure that out, that, that that's not what it is, what he said is you just get them here. You get them into treatment. You get them into AA. And if we can get them here long enough, we'll give them that understanding that here's where you are. Here's where you were. Here's where you're headed. Get out now. Because you don't have to go all that way. Really, bottom is death. He said, what we can do is change the trajectory from this back up to there. And it'll be good. So, I'm uh, in this intervention. And for any of you that don't know what an intervention is, or have never heard of it, or never been involved in it, what happens is you walk into this room, and there's all the significant people in your life. You've got your brother and your sister and your mother and your dad and your friend and your boss. And then there's this counselor that you've never seen before. And they're all, they've got the wagon circle. They're all sitting around in these chairs. Lo and behold, there's one open seat. And they say, come on in. Um, just sit down and everybody here loves you and cares about you and they want to say something to you. And your job is to listen. And you're going to get your chance to talk, but it's when Everybody else has all done talking. Don't say a word until then. And so what happens is they start going around the room and they start telling all these unbelievable, ridiculous, terrible, true stories about things that had happened while you were drinking. And they say, and we're really concerned about that and we want you to get help. And when they, when they got around to me, all I could think of to say was, what took you so long? Because I'd really been trying everything I could think of. And it was like, it was, it was like this big weight was lifted off my shoulders because I thought I was hiding it pretty good. I thought I was, you know, really, nobody'd know. And, you know, I'd try and figure out what happened last night through pieces of conversations, put it all together and act like I knew what was going on. But I didn't have it figured out. And so it just, it was like this huge weight lifted off my shoulders. And so I really was going to go into treatment. I thought, this is great. And actually, what I thought was, what a great place to learn how to be a social drinker. I get in there, they'd all figure out I'm not really one of them. I'd learn the secret, come out, bingo, problem solved. So I went off to treatment, and then I found out pretty early in the process that uh, they really didn't think so much that my case was different. And they also didn't think I was ever going to be able to drink again. And they pretty much got me to that realization also. But I really had a problem thinking about quitting, about this idea I had to give up, that I'd failed. Because I was really trying, you know, I thought, geez, these alcoholics can give me the answer. They didn't. And so it was just like this complete block, and the guy could see it. And he came over and he said, you know, you've got this thing framed all wrong. He said, because what you need to understand is if you quit, you win. You know, by getting out of the alcohol, your life becomes better. Your life becomes manageable. And for some reason, that started to work. And that part about my case was different. He says, don't worry. He says, everybody comes in here, they think that we've got an AA wrench to fit every nut. So for some reason, that whole concept fit. And I started going down this path, and I started listening to these stories. And you just need to understand that nobody ever arrived at treatment for alcohol or drugs because everything was going really good in their world. You know, this wasn't a reward for great behavior. Um, and so they start telling the stories and their histories and what happened and what's going on and the damage that they've caused. 
And what really happens, there are two ways you can listen to those stories. You can sit there and you can say to yourself, well, geez, I haven't had the DWI. I haven't had the broken marriage. I haven't had the, the physical problems. I haven't had all these emotional things go wrong. I haven't had all that. And so, you know what? Until it really happens to me, I'm not an alcoholic. There's other things that people do, and they always hold up some guy. My guy was Leroy. Leroy always drank worse than I did. He always got in more trouble. And I always tell you, you know, until my problems are as bad as Lee, I don't really have a problem. And so they sit and they listen and they try and compare themselves out. Fortunately for me, and actually mission critical for me, God gave me a chance to hear myself in. And what would happen is I would listen to those stories. And every one of those stories, there'd be something in, in them. And they would say, I would say to myself, you know, yep, I did that. Or I'd say, God, I could really see myself doing that. I just never got the chance. Or I would sit and I would hear something and say, oh, my God, don't let that ever happen to me. And that if I stayed sober, that actually wouldn't happen. And for me, it was pretty mission critical because I really had had very little. Back in 1981, I was 26 years old, and that was pretty young to be an alcoholic in those days. Today, the number keeps going down. But I hadn't had all those bad consequences. I hadn't had actually any of the legal issues. Work was going fine. You know, I was about to be married. There was all kinds of things going. But... I knew I had that acceptance that this was that this was a problem, and and there's one of the things they've got a lot of sayings in AA, but one of the ones I like probably as much as any is, "What causes problems is one," and if alcohol is causing a problem, then alcohol is a problem. And so, for some reason, I got it, I kept it, and. By the grace of God, for 27 years I stayed sober. Yay, God. Now, 15 years ago, yeah, that's... <laughs> you know, it's funny. Sometimes you get that reaction. I thought, you know, if, if I was like hitting myself in the head with a hammer, and I just kept doing it pretty soon, I'm having concussions, broken cranium, blood, and stitches. Somebody said, so, geez, I noticed your face cleared up. What happened? Put the hammer down. I am so proud of you for that. <laughs> but it kind of feels like that with AA, you know? I mean, yeah, put, put the hammer down. Um, so anyway, <laughs> 15 years ago, I would have told you I was a Christian. And I was raised Catholic. There's no injuries, no scars, no bad memories. Um, yeah, that always gets one, too. Um, I totally believed in the Holy Trinity. I didn't always believe completely in that philosophy that that church had. I really thought that God would meet me wherever I was. And A had become my church. There's a lot of spiritual things in there. This was working fine, except for the fact that Alex was four years old. Claire was two years old. I realized we'd gone way past that little baby thing, dunking in the tank or putting that... But I knew I had to get them baptized one way or another. And so we went on this church search. And all I really wanted to do was find a place that I felt good enough about. So when people said, so where don't you go to church? I could say, well, we had our kids baptized over there. We get in, we get out, we'd be done. And bonus might be we could go somewhere for Christmas and Easter if we really felt like it. 
But I really did not want to get involved at all. And a funny thing happened on the way to church one day. I realized we were going because we wanted to go, not because we felt like we had to. And I'd met people at that church. And Bob Nagley explained it the best to me that I've ever heard it. He said, I knew who Jesus was, but I realized these people knew him. And that was a big deal. And that was a big change. And so this was working. So, But I knew it was in a Catholic church, so I don't know exactly how this baptism thing goes. So... Went in the orientation, trying to understand, and they go, you know, we don't do infant baptisms. There has to be a decision to turn your life over to Christ. And so it wasn't long, and we were getting baptized, and the rest is eternal history. Um, but I've been blessed with a wonderful wife. I've got three great kids, and I've had some business success. I even got reintroduced to the Johnson Institute, um, which was a total blessing, and uh I'm not really sure exactly what God has in mind for me for the rest of this time on earth, but I think it's going to have something to do with addiction and intervention and just being part of this field. And, I, and you know, I look at sobriety and, and um, addiction and, and Christianity, and they, to me there were some similarities, and some of them are on visibility. Congressman Ramstead, he is out there. And most people would say, you know, you can't have a political career if you, if you, if people know that. Because even today there is this stigma and it's, and it's hard to break. It's more often than not people who are not associated with or haven't had a good experience. Um, but anyway, I see it the same way with Christians. Somebody told me one time, said the biggest rap against Christianity is Christians. And it's that visibility piece that they're out there and people are always looking and they're saying, you know what? I see they go to church all the time, but they don't really live out those values. Or they're just so obnoxious in this holier-than-thou standing on the soapbox, it doesn't work. And it's similar in AA. You know, there's a lot of people that either aren't living out the 12 steps or they're sitting there trying to figure out why are you an alcoholic. And it's just, you know, they've got enough to manage their own lives. Um, they Really, I think both of them, it should be about attraction rather than promotion. And in AA, we'd say, you know, you should be carrying the message, not spreading the disease. And I think sometimes that is where the whole disconnect comes. But there's a movement right now, and uh, there's a thing called, one of the things Johnson Institute started, and it's a standalone now, it's called Faces and Voices of Recovery. And it's about people getting visible in their recovery so that they can go help other people. And, you know, the reality is, when we were drinking, we were very visible. Now all of a sudden we're going to get sober and go underground and get anonymous. And people have, that was one of the things that got confusing about AA. They've said, you know, it's, it's anonymous. You're not supposed to speak publicly. The reality, in fact, Bill Wilson was on um, Capitol Hill in the early days and he said that's all, people are wrong about that. It's not that you're not supposed to be out there telling your story. You're just not supposed to be out there talking about AA and all that publicly and breaking people's anonymity. So there is this piece today where that's actually getting traction and trying to find a way to make sobriety not only visible and attractive, but then use it to share that blessing because that really is how the whole thing works. And again, Jim is probably as uh, visible and as great a, an ambassador as we've got. People need to see that it's a great way to live. I mean, I know I was thinking I couldn't imagine life without drinking. And if you do that, 
you know, that it's not this death sense. It's not going to be, well, you know, it's kind of like Eeyore. Well, how's it going, Pooh? Another gray day, you know. And what is it like to be an alcohol? You know, just terrible, just grinding it out, living it out. You know, you want to be, you want to live a long life? Well, just be an alcoholic. You won't live that long, but it'll seem long, you know. No, 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 there is something good. And actually, I found out it was kind of working. Because when my son, he's 18 now, but Alex, when he was in grade school, they had this little thing. They said, so what do you want to be when you grow up? And he wrote down, I want to be an alcoholic just like my dad. <laughs> so he saw this as not a real negative thing. But the real blessing came this year. And it, just after the first of the year, my oldest son, Tyler, got sober. He wasn't 21 yet. It was January 13th. And he decided he'd had enough. And it didn't come because of an intervention. And it didn't come because I was on him about it. What happened was he realized he was going the wrong way. He realized he could not achieve the goals and the objectives and the things that he wanted to do for his life if he kept doing this. And he knew that there was life without alcohol. And he'd seen it from friends of mine and in my life that this wasn't such a bad thing. So he asked us for his help. We actually got him a counselor. The counselor um, said, you know, maybe not treatment right away. Eventually they did get him into treatment. And uh, today he's been sober over eight months. And that's a really big deal. The best thing, though, is now not only is he sober, but he's helping his friends. And since then, he had one friend who said, you know what? I like what you got. I see the changes you've made. And so, you know what? Will you help me? And Tyler helped him, and they went to meetings, and he actually went through treatment, and now they're going to meetings again. And there's a lot of these 20-something kids, and they just, a group of them just decided, there's an there's a adolescent treatment center that Hazelden has up in Plymouth. And now they're going Tuesday nights, and they're sharing that with others. Because you know what? At 21 years old, you're thinking, oh, my God, how could you stay sober? But he sees it in other people. And now he is giving that back to these teenagers who are saying, geez, you know, I'm only 18. How can I do it? He's got one buddy who's 21. He's been six years sober. So it's a great thing. And today I can tell you the only thing that exceeds my wildest dreams is my reality. It really has been a good run. And um, what I'd like to do is just close with you. A lot of you have heard the long or the short version of this, but I, I really think the long version of the serenity prayer is something special. Part you know is God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking as he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he'll make all things right if I surrender to his will. That I may, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him forever in the next. Amen. Well, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Thanks a lot for giving me the time and your attention. Thanks, Mike. We talked about different ways of ending this, and I thought, well, let's just kind of see where the Lord leads it. And one of the things that just stood out to me was this whole idea of attraction, um, the whole idea of here's something in your life that someone sees and they go, I want that, which is really not far different than the way God wants us to live when we come into relationship with him. And the recognition of in every one of our lives, something brought us to a point where we said, 
I need you. And, and I think far more um, attractive um, is someone who actually says, here's what's going on in my life, and they see the change that happened in, in their life. Um, and so that seems to be something that you said is, you know, people from the soapbox are preaching versus just saying, um, using your story as a person who knows God um, in the same way. Those are kind of a neat similarity. Let me just ask you really quickly, um, there may be some people here going, I know someone or um, I, I recognize uh, there's an individual I really love and care for. What would you encourage them to do? Um, you know, the, the trick with addiction is it's, it's a disease of silence. And it is a disease. The AMA um, established that back in the, in the 50s or 60s. Um, but what happens is it is that disease of silence. Everybody's separated and nobody's got all the story. And the real reality, and that's part of where interventions are, oh my God, how do we let it go this long? You get everybody together. And they start talking about it. And once you put all the people, I didn't realize that. And I did. Pretty soon they go, oh my God, we should have been on this a long time ago. So some of it is get it out from the shadows. I mean, make it visible. Share with those people that, that love that alcoholic or that addict. And once you start unraveling all the things that are going wrong that you didn't know about, all of a sudden it becomes really clear. And once you've got that awareness, you know, okay, now what do I do? In fact, there's a, this new code that, that we got passed in the, uh, in the legislature, so now the doctors have a code they can write down. And they've got this thing called SBIRT, which is Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment. And they just want to do the SBI first, Screening, Brief Intervention. And I was in this meeting, I said, well, you can't stop there. How good is that going to be? Well, you know what? We've determined you're an alcoholic. Okay, what do I do now? Don't know. We aren't doing that part yet. I mean, you have to have somewhere to go, and there are a lot of places to go. There are treatment centers that, again, can counsel you. There are independent um, organizations that have interventions. There's a lot of places to turn. This church would be a great place to turn. Again, you've got, refer- you've got resources like me and Ramstead, probably others in this congregation that could help. And then we also, um, some of you who may be new, every year we have Minnesota Teen Challenge that comes in and uh, works with people. I spoke there a few weeks ago. And uh, there's just lots of resources to help people um, as they move through that process. I've been involved in a few interventions, and um, there's a huge fear. I've been involved in an intervention of someone very close to me, and there's a huge fear of actually coming before someone and, and, and dealing with that. Um, because you have all your own issues involved. And um, one of the things that uh, in, in some of these situations, I've been in, in a couple of them that didn't go well, which is a big fear. Well, what happens if it doesn't go well? Because you all love the story of, hey, and you think I'm going, why didn't you just tell me this? <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But they don't always go well. No. And that's why, you know, this should only be done by professionals. Don't try this at home on your own. Because the reality is you're just too close to the situation. You know, people do it with a great heart. But again, all the things that have gotten that alcoholic or that addict out of the heat before will happen again. The good news is, when you get a professional, you're in their part of the sandbox. They understand all the dynamics, and they don't have that emotional attachment. It's pretty cut and dry, and they understand. And they aren't going to let somebody go off the reservation and figure a way out of this thing again, just until the heat goes down. 
they're going to confront it, they're going to deal with it, and there's going to be a plan of action coming out of it. Right. And if it doesn't even go well after that, the reality is, as I can speak for, a lot of personal growth takes place, and it's just one more step. Growth is about walking in the light, getting honest, and following the Holy Spirit as he leads you and directs you into the truth. And, and that's what we want to be about, right? We want to be about the kind of people that help set people free. We're going to close about uh, just singing this song, um, I Am Free.